Hello everyone and welcome to The Apex, a weekly conversation with the titans and tastemakers of the automotive world. Our guest this week is one of the world's most renowned and influential designers, Frank Stevenson. If you've ever longed for a modern McLaren, admired the rear wing on a Ford Escort RS Cosworth, or just found delight in a modern Mini Cooper or Fiat 500, you'll probably know what it feels like to encounter his elegant design work. He joins us today to tell us a bit more about his inspirations, his design philosophy, and perhaps a few stories from a tremendous career. Frank, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, guys. Hi, nice to be here. So just to start, could you briefly tell us about how you got into cars and car design in the first place? Oh, um, sure. <laughs> I, 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 I think, uh, I mean, it's a strange one because I grew up in Morocco, so that's not really car country as we know it. Um, but I did grow up with a father who was very interested in anything mechanical, especially anything that went fast. So uh, cars naturally came off of the back of that. And uh, in the early 60s, my father started a car dealership which meant that my summers were spent in the car dealership rather than, uh, you know, than playing in the playground or, or anything like that. So I spent a lot of time in my youth growing up uh, in this car dealership and just just being exposed to to the wonderful world of, of international cars because it was a, a dealership that dealt in different brands and marks and things. So um, I also grew up with a very... Um, artistic mother. My father was very technical, cool, calculated kind of guy. And my mother was on the opposite end of the spectrum. She loved the arts. So I think genetically, I was kind of disposed from the get-go to be sort of a artistic scientist or something. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, I, I spent a lot of time drawing cars as a kid in the dealership. And uh, at some t- point, the uh, the lever, or the lever f- uh, flips and you started wanting to draw cars that you imagine rather than the cars that are sitting there in front of you and that typically in the world of car design happens around 10 years old with most of us for some strange reason um and and of course i started around 10 drawing cars that didn't exist and without even an ounce of knowledge that that was that they could pay you to do this as a profession (laughs) (laughs) and so um weirdly enough around the age of 22 i discovered the world of professional car design or at least that there was a potential to turn your drawings into money, I guess. Uh, And naturally, you had to go to university to study that. And you couldn't just go straight into being a professional car designer. So um, I left a professional motorcycle racing career behind reluctantly um, and decided to go the way of uh, designing cars for a living, hopefully, because at the point there, you're not really sure if you're going to get a job or not. Um, But luckily, I I did... uh, survive four years of art center college of design and if you do that you're pretty much guaranteed to get a job in the industry so um i was i was um i don't know if the right word is cherry picked but halfway through my university uh ford uh came along and said if we pay for the rest of your studies the next two years of your university will you sign on on graduation and obviously i couldn't turn that offer down because it takes a huge weight off your shoulders and uh, so I went straight to Ford. That's how I got into car design. That's fantastic. So speaking mm. of design, you've designed everything from the modern Mini Cooper to extreme performance cars at Ferrari, Maserati, and McLaren, and with the Fiat 500 along the way. Do you design your vehicles with a specific kind of person in mind, thinking about the customer who's buying that car? Or do you go with the shapes which feel right for the purpose? Well, it's, it's kind of a triple action, I would say, because when you design a car, you're not designing it for yourself. I mean, you can be very arrogant and the higher you get up in a company, the more responsibility and 
power you can have over the design, I guess, because then you're speaking directly to management and, and the board. But when you're in that phase of designing a car, um, I think a good lesson for younger designers is to remember they're designing the car for the company, not for themselves. Although mm -hmm. the company's paying you as a designer to, to interpret that potential design as, as your idea, not, not as what they want you to design because you're the professional. You're, that's why they're paying you the big bucks, as they say. So you have to be as individual as possible when you're communicating the answer to the marketing request to, to build a certain car for a certain segment of the market. Now, the main thing there, I think, is if you're a smart designer, you won't start off like a, like a bat out of hell designing the car. You'll do your research first of what the market in that segment is like, who the competition is, who does it best, in other words. And then that's your target. I think all designers want to do the next big thing. And you can't do that by just thinking like the status quo, like it's normally done. So the cars that have the most impact or the best impact are the ones that are probably pushing the limits in design and giving the engineers headaches right from the start. Um, mm. So yeah, you have to you have to research the market and you do have to do both. You do have to look at who is the kind of person in mind, as you said, and uh, the, the car that feels right for you in that market. Um, uh, the, the Making it right for the person means uh, obeying almost the design values of the company you're working with. Um, it, it's it's very arrogant if you throw away years of design history, design language of a of mm. a great brand just to do something that looks completely different. And you need that logo on there to identify the the design language. That's the worst thing. Mm. Typically, we always say that you should be able to identify the, the the design of the car without any brand logos on the car. So it should reflect the design language, design history, but sort of in a updated or not even updated in an innovative way because you're, you're designing a car that's going to be out in five years. There's no way the public knows what they want in five years. We're not designing fashion or products or anything like that that mm -hmm. are in and out in one year. So you have to design sort of five years into the future and you have to think even three years ahead of that. So it's about eight years because when that car comes out, you still want it to look fresh for another three years at least. And then there's the facelift. So so you're kind of not designing it for a certain person, but for a certain uh, point in the market that will suit the marketing's uh, strategy of what that segment is like. So, so would you say that that kind of dynamic was more difficult to the Ferrari than a, than a Mini Cooper or a Fiat, or, or is it all kind of the same? I think it's I think it's kind of all the same. You know, people say you know uh, must be much more exciting designing a supercar than it is to design a an Econo box or a mm -hmm. you know, AD <laughs> car. It's definitely not any more fun or any less fun. The, the challenges are the same. Um, you know, if they ask you to write a short story or a novel, you're going to put the same kind of effort into both because what you want at the end is customer, you know, satisfaction and 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 positive positive reception and the customers is is beside it you know you want uh you want the reactions to fit if it's a supercar it's got to be instant desire because nobody needs a a supercar it's it's like mm -hmm. you don't need a supercar but you have to it's priced at a point of at a price point that makes people spend a lot of good money for something that is instantly desirable for them 
Whereas on the other end of the market, the A to B cars, we can call them, or the bread and butter cars, those cars have to sell obviously on price. And so they're looking at the best uh, value for a product like that and obviously quality. Um, but, but again, it's emotional purchasing that we're talking about. The customer has to feel like that car kind of represents his, his, his or her personality, you know, and uh, if you have a dry personality, you don't mind driving a dry looking car. But if you're a outgoing type of person, you're going to want an out looking kind of car. That's just the way people are. They, they dress the way they are and uh, their homes reflect that. And so do their purchasing. So on, on this kind of theme, what do you think about the recent trend for super exclusive limited runs of hypercars or pure statement pieces, I think, mm. like Tesla Cybertruck? Yeah. Is that where you think bleeding edge design should be going or should our focus really be elsewhere? Well, I, 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 I find an incredible value to those hyper, hyper, you know, super exotic designs. Uh, an incredible value. Uh, people might think that it's stupid that we design cars that have basically a very low uh, volume and, and, and uh, you know, not many people are ever even going to see a car like that on the street. But look beyond that. That's a very limited way of thinking, I think. Uh, no pun intended. But I think uh, we need outrageous designs, uh, much like in fashion, they, they use Haute Couture to explore um, not necessarily what the customer wants, because, you know, where are you going to go in a Haute Couture? You know, your partner, say your girlfriend is dressed in Haute Couture, she, you're going to think, you know, people are going to think she's a bit mad or over the top. But at the same time, what they do is help us develop uh, technology at the extreme end of the market that can or cannot be uh, practical or usable or whatever. But the good stuff typically is very expensive to design and that into the market welcomes that type of design such that if it is good design, it trickles down eventually into the uh, usable segments, you know. So we do need that that high, high end that presses, you know, the love it, hate it kind of reaction where it's almost a test bed for design taste and engineering technology, everything that sort of you would never attempt to bring that in into a high volume car segment. So I, 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 I 100%, 110% stand behind uh, that upper end of the segment simply because viewing it as more than just a, you know, an attention get, getter, I think it's more of a technology test bed uh, and design test bed. So all marks to, to any of those companies that push the limits with their concept cars. Hmm. And I, I know that you put a video out recently discussing the design of the Tesla Cybertruck mm. yeah. and your opinions on that. I mean, from an aesthetic and technological point of view, could you tell us a bit more about your thoughts on what I think most people recognize as quite an extreme, even for you know a modern cutting edge car company, an extreme yeah. design? Yeah, I mean, let's, uh, you know, there, there's two camps, two, two ways of looking at it, technology or design. Technology it's interesting, obviously nobody has ever done, I mean, tank designers do it maybe, or armored bunker <laughs> designers do it. So you take a little bit of influence like that, but I can only think of violent situations or, or very, um, as I called it, sort of post-apple, you know, uh, sort of the, the, the dystopia type of situation where you would need a product like that, where you're not worried about damaging the vehicle and you're safe in your cocoon and all that. So 
perhaps there is a need for that type of vehicle in, in industrial usage. You know, uh, if you're, I don't know, out in the fields working or some uh, <laughs> industrial site, perhaps, but in the world of car design, that, that vehicle makes zero, if there's any number less than zero, I'd give it less than that sense because we're talking about products that people are buying and using and you can say, okay, look at it from the advantage that it doesn't scratch, doesn't need paint, um, it's sturdy, um, you can't make a dent. Okay, but that's kind of like starting out with a negative, a negative approach to life. It just turns me completely off. And, you know, people say, oh, you're an old fart. You don't really, you, you just want to hold on to the past and not think about things in the future. Yeah, but I mean... You know, if you want to look at it that way, look at it this way. The cars that turn me on or, or, or even anything that turns me on is basically uh, good design. In other words, you look at a car that, that keeps its design value no matter what period of time we're looking at it. That could be the Alfa Romeo, you know, Tipo 33 Stradale in terms of people. Sophia Loren is going to look beautiful forever to us. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, fifth, oh, I can't even say the word. <laughs> Fifth Symphony, it's going to sound great forever. Whereas the Tesla Cybertruck for me is, I don't know, it's more like the Elephant Man or some kind of strange music that, you know, doesn't make any sense at all. I don't know. It's just a moment in time that you will get people who like it for what it is. But on a grand scale, it's not done. Um, it's not done in a, in a smart way, I think. And technology, great. Design-wise, people say you're restricted by the technology, the, the use of materials. That's hogwash. You can do anything with any type of material if you find a way to do it. And you're limiting yourself when you say, well, that's the only way you can bend metal you know, or that kind of stainless steel. It doesn't have to look that bad or that, that basic, I guess you could say. And is this where you'd bring in, I know another theme that you're quite passionate about is using cues from the natural world to influence the way that you design um, cars yeah in a way i mean you know it, it can also sound hokey pokey when i say i want everything to look like it's designed by nature the only thing i mean when i say designed by nature is that everything in nature is designed to to win to succeed and to 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 to, to be the best solution out there and so that in itself is my inspiration not that it has to look like a tree or it has to look like a mm a rock or I don't know, whatever, the inspiration of how that, that shape is determined or arrived at means that, you know, there's, there's an intelligent um, reason for the design to be that way. It's not haphazard. And the, the, the designs that don't conform, say, to the laws or, or let's call them the principles of good design, just jar. I mean, the ratio, there's a, there's a, in biomimicry, which is the science of, of you know, using nature as a uh, design inspiration, there, there are certain laws of, propor of proportion, which, you which just do not change in nature. And that's why we typically are, are wired to see things as being beautiful or not. And you can say, okay, beauty is subjective or in the eyes of the beholder, but it's very hard to take something that is absolutely gorgeous and, and using those laws of proportion and criticize it from, from good design, saying it's not good design. That's just a reflection of bad taste. You know, everybody has an opinion, but not everybody has good taste or, 
or not. So mm. if you're designing something within the, the golden law of proportion, as we call it, uh, typically that design results in a very well-balanced, um, uh, uh, agreeable design. It's not old-fashioned or anything like that. It just feels right. It's, it's that main selling point of a design that I think is important, which is love at first sight. You look at something, it feels mm. right. And it doesn't take you hardly any time at all to get used to it. It might be innovative, you know, and you've never seen it before, but as long as it achieves that instant desirable emotional factor, then you're, you're winning with that. That's a, that's a really interesting way of putting it. And mm -hmm. so just, just to broaden out slightly before we get into some car stuff, mm -hmm. um, in recent years, you've set up the Frank Stevenson Design Consultancy, where you mm -hmm. work on much more than just cars. What projects are you currently working on that you could tell us about, and what excites you about them? Well, um, I mean, people probably wonder why I, you know, you've got to admit, I mean, I, I, I would, if I was in the car design profession, that, you know, head honcho at McLaren has to be pretty, pretty fun and, and a pretty satisfying position. Yet, once you've done it, you know, over a period of a decade or so, and, you, and I came in at the very grassroots, I guess, of, of, of McLaren Automotive, where we had to establish a design language and we had to sort of achieve a level that was respected in the super and hypercar segments. And we did that with the, um, the sports car, the, the 570, the, the supercar and the hypercar. So um, as soon as I did that, I thought, well, now it's time to really, really think, am I happy? And I was happy, but the result of having done it after one decade decade meant that I was going to repeat another decade of renewing those cars. And once you've done mm -hmm. it, you've done it. It's like anything. One, you know, you always aspire to something higher. And, and once you've done it, it's kind of behind you. And you can either challenge yourself to, to take it to the next level, or you can veer off and, and, and do a rethink, which is what I did. And I thought, not a lot of people are going to see these McLarens or own these McLarens. Mm -hmm. And what I want to do is take at that stage of my life, it just felt right. You know, I'd been in there for just over three decades of car design. I thought I've learned quite a bit and I haven't really put my foot wrong yet. So why don't I just get out and start doing stuff that can really make an impact on a, on a more um, expansive, I guess, uh, level, which is reaching out or, or, or doing design for a lot larger segment of people and just take on projects that can make a huge difference in society. Sounds kind of, you know, like, uh, 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 <laughs> that, I guess, but, but at the same time you think about it and if you're in that position, it does make a lot of sense to, mm. to give back at that stage. So I wanted to get out, start my own design consultancy and not have marketing department, the marketing department tell me what to do, but rather be able to choose. So I set up uh, the consultancy with four primary, I guess, or four filters, um, which was if the design project I was being asked to do, um, uh, first of all, was innovative, uh, in other words, it brought in new technology. That was uh, one of the filters. The second was that it had to be the best in its segment, not, not necessarily expensive, but the best of the best in its segment, which means you're aiming high. The third was that it had to use sustainable materials, which is the big buzzword in today's design world is sustainability. Mm -hmm. And the fourth was that it had to be allowed to use biomimicry as, or nature, I guess, as the design inspiration. As long as the project met those four uh, filters or past those four filters, then it was probably going to be a great project to work on. And so I, I kept that philosophy and uh, right away it started uh, uh, allowing me to, to just work on projects that were going to make a huge 
uh, impact, I guess. The first one that came along was uh, this new age mobility that we're looking at, which are the flying taxis. And this is not really saying the future because it's happening now. Just people are behind the scenes, know about it and people out there don't know too much about it. But within this decade, around the middle of this decade, we're gonna be seeing uh, taxis that you order up like an Uber that land in 11 square meters of space. You get into the pod, it goes straight up into the sky uh, electrically. And then it flies you on a, as the crow flies or as the bird flies straight to your destination and lands vertically. And it'll be quite an experience and, and you know, timing and all that is, and safety obviously is the most important thing. So these EV toll aircraft are gonna be the future way, not, not necessarily eliminating any other type of transport like trains or cars, obviously, or planes, big airplanes, but it's another way to, to get you to your destination in a much more efficient way. So that's coming and I've been working on two different projects. I finished one and moved on to another one in another part of the world because it's, it's, it's happening everywhere now. And the next project I also got involved with was designing uh, what should be, and well, it is right now, it's, it's, we've tested it and everything, so we're sure about it, but the safest infant car seat on the market for your most prized possession. Mm. And so it's using uh, high-end technology that's used in armored vehicles to absorb energy on impact. So your, 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 your child should be at least 70% or around 70% safer in one of these seats than wow. in any other competitive seat uh, baby car seat on the market. Um, it looks incredibly advanced. It looks like no other car seat on the market, but it still still is, um, you know, your, your, your mummy's going to love it because you'll just want to hold on <laughs> to it and you know, cuddle it. Yeah. And so it's not a machine. It's just uh, very high tech and, and looks cuddly at the same time. So I've been doing that. I've been working on watches for uh, not even air, space, land, and deep sea. So that's a special project I'm working on. Um, I've been involved, or I'm starting to get involved in right now in the first two cars that are gonna race on the lunar surface. They're going up in wow. October of 21 on SpaceX. And that's an in uh, incredibly uh, exciting program because from a design point of view, you would think, why, why did they hire a designer to be the head of the design of this vehicle when it's just pure uh, engineering? But at the same mm -hmm. time, these things have to look advanced and there's a lot of design um, knowledge that you can uh, use from having studied uh, well what I've been exposed to in high-end hypercar where you know weight weight and power mm -hmm. and things like that it's not so much aerodynamics because there's not a lot, not a lot of <laughs> downforce on the moon but it's uh, you know these things have to be designed yeah. correctly design is not art design has never been art for me it's um that's what I love about it. It's a combination of art and science. So that's that's the attractive part of that. And that's that's uh, also a part of the educational side where we're bringing in young people, being advised by scientists, uh, uh, reputable design uh, scientists, and also as a pre-development program for the lunar rover that's going to go up in 2024. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I could go on and on, but... Uh, <laughs> No, I mean, that's an incredible breadth of work. I think that's yeah. that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I thought that given we've got about 10 minutes left, mm -hmm. I, I thought we'd bring it back to, to some questions that I think car enthusiasts would want to know. Um, mm -hmm. th the first is, 
Is there a designer that you hold or held as your role model or any people who have particularly inspired the way that you design and or think about car Oh, absolutely, designs? absolutely. But he's dead now. I mean, he's, he hasn't been around for a few years. Um, da Vinci, this Italian dude. Um, <laughs> I just loved the way he... Uh, he was he was the old I mean you know you talk about the Renaissance man he is the Renaissance man everything after that Absolutely. was kind of Renaissance but I just like the, uh, the 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 range of thought that he applied to to every aspect of of I mean, he was I don't even think genius fits the the description of this guy he could do anything pretty much uh, to to and be the ultimate in it I mean he was you know, a doctor almost, you know, he could, he did so much research into the human body and organisms and things, but he looked at it from a purely scientific way, but he had a touch for aesthetics that was unrivaled also. I mean, look at his paintings and, and the way he invented stuff that today makes sense. Back then it was, it was probably looked at as a half, half nuts, you know, half crazy guy, but designers, good designers are half nuts anyways, or we have to be different at least to, to be able to think like that. But he was wired in a, in a really interesting way. So he, he definitely is somebody I would um, have loved to have uh, lunch with, you know. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's a brilliant answer. I think yeah. on, on reflection, it's not one that I, I would have expected, but when you think about yeah. it, it's, it's, it's completely, it completely makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think that the second question um, I wanted to ask was, is there a particular innovation in car design that you'd like to see more of? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so car design being that we're talking about the earth means that we have to deal with a lot of problems. <laughs> one of them obviously <laughs> is uh, accidents and safety. And the other one is uh, mostly in efficiency. So um the safety part, obviously, you know, Mercedes, I think, is even leading the way in terms of being able to look around corners and, and Tesla's doing the autonomous thing, which I don't really put a lot of faith in level five mm. yet, maybe in 50 years from now. But until all cars drive at level five, uh, you're not going to be safe out there. You have a dumb car crashing into a smart car because, you know, it, <laughs> it's just going to happen. Unless the level five car can repel the the dumb car it's not going to happen it'll happen in the sky much sooner um but yeah so so the the exterior is uh obviously um um one thing um gosh i just went off track with my mind i had some great things on. uh so so from the efficiency point of view sorry i'll get back on track now the the efficiency side obviously for me now, a lot of people probably won't agree with me, uh, but for certain reasons, but I'm pretty confident I could shoot down uh, uh, their, 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 their replies. Electric is not as efficient as people think it is. It's um, typically, I mean, it depends on how fa fast or how much you use your electric car, you know, how, how, how zippy you want to drive it around, but you're going to be driving at least 20,000 miles, anywhere between... 20 to 40,000 miles before you you balance balance out the equation uh, of of it compared to a ICE engine in other words you're not getting the benefit right away you're not you're not uh, offsetting the carbon with an electric car as soon as you buy it it takes a lot of carbon to get that car on the road and so the electric uh, propulsion method for me has always been not always but I've learned more about it you know, since, since it's become a, a thing is, is a stop gap, uh, uh, stop gap solution. I don't even call it a solution. It's just a stop gap, mm -hmm. uh, thing. 
because until we actually get cars on the road that are zero, you know, carbon uh, 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 footprint, that 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 is not advancing society or propulsion methods or anything like that. The big one, the one that I think, or two solutions that I think we should be looking at in the car industry is one is um, biodegradable fuels. So, so environmentally friendly fuels, which, which will allow you to still run ICE engines, which in, 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 in the next step allows you to still have that, that emotion that a, a ICE engine gives us, you know, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. that don't care about that and they just want to get from here to there. And they're not interested in about the vibrations or the sounds of a, of a Ferrari engine. Okay. That's, mm-hmm. that's one generation, but at the same time, if you can produce a car that runs on very clean biofuels, that is somewhere where we should be going or hydrogen, obviously, because hydrogen is just putting out H2O. And that for me is a great, great solution. We already have trucks and other vehicles using hydrogen. Um, So that would be the other investigation, I think, in terms of propulsion. And the other one that is very important is because what I said at the beginning, cars are on the earth. We have to make sure that they're as efficient as possible when they're traveling. If they start, you know, having to penetrate the wind, then the handling and the aesthetics of the car are going to come into question because a car at low speed can look generally whatever, however you want it. A car at higher speed, which would make transportation more efficient the faster you can go and safely, obviously. But then that car at speed, what we don't want to do is have items tacked onto the car that make it look like some kind of boy racer. And the the way around that is what we call active aerodynamics. And so I think one of the first cars to do that might be the McLaren Speedtail, where the actual body of the car transforms or modifies itself the faster you go. So you have a wing on the back. And that's just the first easy step. But I'm talking about body panels that, that shape themselves according to the speed. And there are a lot of animals in nature that do that. A lot of them, uh, change their shape to be more efficient at, at certain speeds or, or to break or to turn or anything like that. But these birds don't have spoilers tacked onto them or anything <laughs> like that. It's body morphine, you know? So mm. if we can get cars to become actively aerodynamic, responding to certain conditions in a corner or acceleration, downforce, whatever, I don't know, that, that would be a great step forward. So we'd be looking at cars that actually look like they're alive rather than mm. static, you know, with help of crutches and things like that. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. An, that's an amazing vision of the future, and that's lots of very mm. interesting ideas there. So I, mm. I think the final question I wanted to ask you, and if we can cast our minds back over design history, and it's really a, mm. a personal one, is there a car you wish you had had a chance to design or work on? Uh, the mini, no, not the mini. I already did one. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> no, I don't want to. Sorry about that. No. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say. There's so many cars out there that have, that, 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 that get me excited. You know, I, I would have loved to work on all of them, but if you got to choose one and I know, I know most people know what my favorite car ever has been, but um, it would probably be the Jag, the first Jag E-Type, the, the one in the mm. early 60s that lasted to the mid, mid-ish 60s, because that car for me was amazing in the sense that it wasn't designed by a designer. It was designed by an aerodynamicist, mm. Malcolm Sayer. And so he used kind of very uh, pure geometric um, uh, design to create a shape that still to this day just makes my you know, hair stand on my arm, stand up on my arm, sort of gives me goosebumps. But that for sure, um, 
yeah. Uh, I, I did a redesign of it at, uh, on, on one of my YouTube channels where I kind of put myself into that position in time and thought mm -hmm. if I'd have done it, which has been very, very arrogant, but at the same time, if there had <laughs> been a second proposal for that car, how would I have uh, taken that same car and designed it thinking of the same design methods they had back then? It's very easy to make a car today that looks much more futuristic than the E-Type. But mm -hmm. if you try to restrain yourself and think, okay, this is all they could have done back then in 60 or 61, this is pretty much what could have also happened. And, and so I did that, but it doesn't change it very much. It's just tuning it slightly and tweaking it here yeah. and there. The car is fabulous. So I would have loved to, to have been involved in that first E-Type project. Wow. Well, what, what a fantastic note to end on. Frank, Ooh. I think that's all we've got time for today. So thank sure. you for a fascinating interview and a real insight into your life and work. It's been great having Pleasure. you along. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hector. Thank you. <laughs>